Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Today, we sit down with TIPQC Infant Medical Director, Dr. Anna Murad and Dr. Jimmy Carlucci to discuss hepatitis C screening for mothers and babies. Dr. Carlucci will be joining us for our annual meeting in March 2021, and we are so excited to share this conversation as a preview. Registration for our annual meeting is now open through the end of February, but don't delay. Seats are limited in our new virtual format. Head over to www.tipqc.org. That's T-I-P-Q-C.org to register today. Now, without further ado, let's tune into the discussion between Dr. Murad and Dr. Carlucci. All right, Dr. Carlucci, we're so excited to have you here with us today to talk about perinatal hepatitis C. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, happy to. Thank you for having me. Um, so my, my background is in both medicine and pediatrics. I did my, my training primarily at Vanderbilt, residency and pediatric infectious disease fellowship there. Um, also did my master's in public health at Vanderbilt and my practicum at the Tennessee Department of Health. Um, as a pediatric infectious disease subspecialist, I primarily am focused on HIV in children, and my research is looking at uh, maternal and infant health and retention and prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV services in, in Africa. Um, so hepatitis C has been a bit of a um, departure from my primary focus, but something that I've um, been really interested in, in the last few years. And I should say that I was, I already mentioned I did most of my training at Vanderbilt and I was on faculty at Vanderbilt for a few years until just recently when I joined the Center for Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Global Health at Indiana University to pursue some new research opportunities. Excellent. Was there anything specific that got you interested in hepatitis C? Um, Yeah, I I mean, I think like most things in my life, I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, It certainly wasn't uh, intentional. It started... I think uh, as a pediatric infectious disease doctor, so in our clinic, we were getting more referrals for hepatitis C exposed infants and for uh, older children and adolescents who were infected with hepatitis C. So it, it started there. And then, as I mentioned, while I was doing my master's in public health, my practicum experience was at the Tennessee Department of Health in the um, division of HIV, STIs, and viral hepatitis. And I had intended to do an HIV-related project, um, but Carolyn Wester, uh, who's an obstetrician by training, who was the director of that division at the time, she's now at the CDC serving as the director of viral hepatitis programs, had a lot of hepatitis C-related projects going though. So so ultimately that's what I ended up working on was a project looking at screening um, among HCV screening among baby boomers. Um, And so that was another project that, that sort of piqued my interest in hepatitis C. And then 
you know, between the clinical work and that research project, and then sort of meeting a critical mass of people at Vanderbilt and at the Department of Health and elsewhere who were interested in hepatitis C, it just sort of generated this, this collaborative network that has been ongoing. Well, we're certainly glad that you followed that path. So can you talk a little bit about the incidence of hep C and uh, the risk factors associated with hep C? Yeah, so I guess I'll start historically. You know, we've thought of hepatitis C primarily impacting baby boomers. So I mentioned I did that project at the Department of Health. And, you know, that just goes back to uh, things people were doing in the 60s and 70s, I guess. There used to be this, you know, this peak in that age group, but now there's really this new, this bimodal distribution where we're seeing uh, high prevalence in that group, but also high prevalence and high incidence in, in younger adults. And that seems to be uh, mirroring the opioid epidemic. And that gets to your question about risk factors. So hep C is a bloodborne pathogen. So really anything that results in blood moving from one person to another is a risk factor for hep C. Uh, classically, we think about things like needle sharing with IV drug use or getting non-sterile piercings or tattoos. And interestingly, inhaled drug use is also an independent risk factor. But in the era of effective screening of the blood supply, you know, blood transfusions are, are no longer considered a risk factor, but historically they were as well. Um, and of course, sexual transmission uh, is a possible uh, risk for transmission as well, though it's a less efficient means of transmission than, than some of these other routes. I should also mention that um, some immigrant populations are disproportionately affected by HCV. So, for example, in the U.S., Europe, Australia, Hep C prevalence typically ranges from about a half percent to one and a half percent of the population. While in South and East Asia and parts of Africa, the prevalence ranges from two percent to as high as nine percent. For children, the main risk factor is being born to a mother with hepatitis C, because the virus can be um, transmitted either in utero or during the birthing process. But all said. Um, I'd like to challenge folks to also think of this as a disease of poverty. It's a disease that disproportionately impacts already vulnerable individuals and communities, um, which is why the global epidemiology is what it is. So uh, in our response, we of course have to think about ways to mitigate IV drug use and promote the use of clean needles. Um, but we also, I think, need to create opportunities for folks so that they don't turn to drug use in the first place. We also need a health system that allows marginalized immigrant populations to access high quality health care. And of course, we want opportunities for women and mothers to access early and high quality reproductive services and prenatal care, just as a couple of examples. Are there specific immigrant groups that we should, other than the ones you mentioned, that we should be automatically testing? Well, I mean, I mean really, we should be automatically testing all adults, in my opinion. Um, I mean, there are new recommendations from CDC and the USPSTF that all adults should be getting at least one-time screening for hepatitis C. So, so nowadays, I think everyone, myself included, um, and I've already had my test, um, you know, should, should get tested. But yeah, among, you know, people coming from South Asia, Southeast Asia, and, you know, primarily East Africa, I would say, I would definitely make sure that, that those families are screened when they come over. Can you talk a little bit more about the universal screening that the CDC is recommending and, and any barriers that you see um, with implementation for that? There are a couple kind of aspects to those recommendations that I think are, are worth noting. One is what I already mentioned, which is that you know all adults should have at least a one-time test. But as you mentioned, um, CDC and USPSTF are both now recommending that pregnant women get uh, testing with 
every pregnancy. So not just that one-time adult screening, but with each pregnancy. ACOG, uh, and I may be behind, but I, I just did a little search um, to make sure that I, that I wasn't. So correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that they're still reviewing those recommendations and haven't formally endorsed them. So I, I do see that as a potential barrier to uptake, you know, because like, I think, you know, as with any specialty, if your professional organization isn't promoting a uh, certain activity or clinical practice, then uptake is going to be less than it would be otherwise. And then along those same lines, you know, because of the way our health system is structured, you know, insurance companies are, uh, you know, what they consider a billable service usually follows what's considered a recommend, you know, what tests are recommended. You know, if you're ordering a bunch of tests that aren't approved or recommended, then they may not get reimbursed. And so I think that's another you know, potential economic barrier. Yeah, I think those are very good points. Why is it important that pregnant women are identified during pregnancy? I think there are a few kind of components to, to answering that and, and getting back to, you know, why maybe there's been hesitancy to recommend universal screening. So on the one hand, you know, some providers have had the, the perception, which maybe is based on a lack of knowledge, or maybe it's, it's just not yet adapted to the changing uh, incidence rates. But there's this idea that there's not anything you can do for pregnant women. So why would you test for it? And, and maybe contrasting that with the things that are recommended, you know, helps put that into perspective. So, you know, for all pregnant women who are accessing prenatal care, we're all familiar with, you know, the battery of prenatal tests they get, some of which are for infectious diseases. So hepatitis B, HIV, syphilis, and using HIV as an example, since that's you know, sort of, you know, my, my area of expertise and interest. If you diagnose a woman with HIV during pregnancy, well, then you can start her on antiretrovirals which is good for her health and help prevent, you know, vertical transmission to her baby. So there's an actionable thing you can do with that test. And so I think some providers have seen hep C as, as a different beast in that there's not currently treatment approved for, for pregnant women. And so what's gained by, by diagnosing them during pregnancy, especially if it's going to be at the cost of the, of the health system, because it's not reimbursed by insurance, you know, as we, we discussed previously. But personally, I feel like that's a little bit short-sighted because just because you can't treat the woman during pregnancy doesn't mean you can't do anything about that test result, right? Of course, you can refer them in the postpartum period for, for curative treatment. I mean, the, the treatments have really advanced and there's no longer requirements for people to have advanced disease. So an otherwise healthy woman in the postpartum period can access and should access curative treatment for her hepatitis C. So that's part of it. The other reason is to make sure that their baby gets referred for follow-up and screening because we know there's a risk of vertical transmission from mom to baby. And if we don't seize the opportunity to test that baby during infancy, well, then it might be years, decades later before the that child who's now an adult develops symptomatic disease with potentially irreversible liver damage at that point. Um, and that's, you know, potentially life-changing or life-threatening um, and a lot more expensive um, to, to treat than it would have been if you did a simple screening test and offered treatment earlier in life when they were eligible. So what is the transmission risk for babies? Yeah, so it's uh, approximately 5%. So one in 20 babies born to women who have active hepatitis C will go on to have hepatitis C. That is probably doubled 
in children who are born to women with HIV or women with other immunocompromising conditions. Um, and that has to do with, you know, probably levels of viral load and transmissibility um, with inflammation in the placenta and in the uh, delivery process, you know, exposure in the delivery process. But yeah, generally 5%, maybe higher in certain subgroups, um, which, you know, on at face value doesn't sound like a terribly high risk. But when you think about it at scale, it's, it's really a lot of exposed infants. I mean, I, I was looking at the statistics earlier, uh, and there's somewhere in the ballpark of 4 million babies born in the United States every year. And if you estimate, say, 1%, those pregnancies are affected by hepatitis C, which frankly is probably an underestimate. And that's going to vary from region to region. But I would say with a high level of certainty that in Tennessee, it's, it's a lot higher than that. But again, let's say there's 4 million babies born, 1% of those are, are, are HCV exposed. Now you're talking about 40,000 infants. And if 5% of those are infected, then that's 1,500 infected children every year. It's a lot. So if a baby is delivered and, and mom has, is found to have hep C, what are some of the things that we need to be telling them to do once they go home after discharge from the hospital? What are the things we need to make sure the family understands? Yeah. So in addition to all of you know the normal routine newborn care that you would recommend, there are there are a few things. One is I would try to provide some reassurance that while you know one in 20 babies, so five percent are going to be infected, 19 and 20 aren't. Um, and so the odds are in the baby's favor. I think that's important to kind of you know reassure parents so that they're not freaking out. But also emphasizing the importance of follow-up both for mom and for baby. For mom, because she can get access to curative treatment for baby for the reasons you know I previously mentioned, so that they can get appropriately screened and if positive, you know, go on to get treatment when they're when they're old enough. But uh, uh, getting back to you know, not every baby is infected. Doing things to make sure that the baby doesn't get infected in the postpartum period, and so making sure that mom and for the parents, caregivers um, are using a uh, a grooming kit specifically for that child. So you know, not sharing nail clippers, not sharing toothbrushes, those kinds of things. But otherwise, you know, encouraging them to do normal newborn care, which includes breastfeeding. You know, there's no evidence that hepatitis C is transmitted through breast milk, uh, and there are tons of benefits to breastfeeding, as you know. So I think spelling that 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 misconception, I think that a lot of Hep C positive mothers have that they're going to potentially infect their baby through breast milk. But again, ed and educating them, you know, on the exception that if there's cracked or bleeding nipples, that that that's a potential risk for transmission. And so in that scenario, you'd want to pause breastfeeding and supplement with formula. But Otherwise, it's safe. Yeah, and I think the CDC goes so far to say there's not really been a transmitted case, but out of an abundance of caution with cracked and bleeding nipples, we would not want mom breastfeeding, but otherwise, please breastfeed. Yeah, and I, another thing too I should mention is, you know, seize the opportunity to get other people in the family screened. So other children who've not previously been tested and then, of course, the woman's partner. That's an excellent point. Because some of these moms do have children who are older who probably haven't been screened. That's a, a really good point to think about. What are the earliest points that a baby can be tested? And then what is sort of the end point for testing? Yeah, so there's a, a little bit of debate about, you know, optimal testing strategies for hep C exposed infants. The gold standard historically has been an antibody test after 18 months of age. 
So 18 months is around the time that we feel pretty confident that babies will no longer have circulating maternal antibodies. So if you have an antibody test after 18 months of age, then you know that the baby has been hep C infected. An antibody prior to 18 months of age doesn't tell you much. If you're unsure whether or not the baby's been hep C exposed, then it can be helpful there. So less than, than 18 months of age, we recommend a PCR test, so looking for the virus more directly. And that can start as early as, as two months of age. Some recommendations say down to one month, but the test is most reliable. Uh, and I think most ex experts would recommend starting screening no sooner than two months of age. So then, so within that spectrum, you know, what should you do? Uh, personally, I, I think early testing is, is preferable. And so I try to encourage these babies to get referred as soon after two months of age as possible. And then if they came and saw me, I would do their first test at that point. And the reason I say that is, you know, in part because I think the sooner you have that information, the, the, the better you can empower the family to, to you know, stay engaged in care and get the follow-up services that the baby's going to need. But it's also an acknowledgement that this population affected by HCV is, you know, it, well, I guess getting back to what I said previously, you know, this is a disease of poverty and these families often have a lot of competing priorities and follow-up can be challenging. Sustained engagement in the healthcare system can be challenging. And so if you're waiting till 18 months, you may miss the opportunity to test them. And so I like to, to test early so that I can provide the family with that information sooner rather than later. Does the testing need to always be done by a specialist or is this something a primary care physician should be able to do? Yeah, I think also debated and at the risk of further diminishing the role of infectious diseases, I, I do think it can be done by a primary care doctor. And in fact, I think it probably should be done in the primary care setting. This, it's really not a very complex algorithm. You know, once you know the, the baby is hep C exposed, then it's just a matter of doing the testing. And again, that can start as early as two months of age. If you start at that age, then it's a PCR, a hepatitis C PCR. Or if you, if you feel confident that you have good follow-up with this family and you wanna wait until 18 months of age, that's, that's fine too. That's the gold standard. And that's still the 1A recommendation when you look at most of the guidelines. But yeah, no, no reason it can't be done in the primary care setting. But if there's provider preference to send to a subspecialist, certainly infectious diseases and hepatology are both, you know, willing and capable of, of doing that, that screening as well. Now, if a baby tests positive, then certainly there should be a referral because the longer term monitoring is important. And then once the baby is treatment eligible, that's something that I think is best done by a specialist. And what age is that now, treatment eligibility? Down to three years of age now. Yeah, so I, I guess just backing up a little bit, you know, historically, the treatments that were available for, for hepatitis C, ribavirin, um, interferon, you know, was, was really um, not very well tolerated, a lot of toxicity. And so for the most part, it wouldn't be offered to children, especially um, unless they already had, you know, severe or advancing disease, you know, there was a real compelling reason to do it. But as direct acting antivirals became available, which are safe, super effective, you know, cure 95% plus of people who take them for three months. It's really, it's really changed the game. And so I can't remember what year it was now, but for several years now, we've had those approved down to 12 years of age. 
and then they were approved down to six years of age. And then just in the last year, there are some of those drugs or certain genotypes approved down to three years of age. That's amazing that we've come that far. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and you know, the benefits of early treatment are, are clear, you know, so if you can treat a baby before they develop any fibrosis of their liver or any other complications, then that's a real win. So what do you see as sort of the next steps with hepatitis C? What do you think is, is our next thing as far as screening, testing? Yeah, I mean, I'd, li- I'd like to see universal hep C testing implemented in pregnancy. Um, I mean, I'd like to see it implemented, you know, in accordance with the, the CDC and USPSTF guidelines. So all adults, you know, getting at least one time screening. But I think that's especially important in pregnancy, you know, again, as an HIV doctor, you know, we test all uh, women for HIV and the prevalence in the United States is well below 1%. Um, The prevalence of hep C among pregnant women is certainly at least 1% and probably much higher than that in certain places. And so just right there, I think there's a justification. Unlike HIV, which requires, you know, chronic lifelong treatment, this is hep C is a disease that we can cure. And so, so that's incredible. And seizing an opportunity to, to test a woman when she's more intensely engaged in the health system than maybe she ever will be, you know, for the rest of her life is, I think, important. And if we don't do that, I think it's a real missed opportunity. And I think it also, at this point, we don't really know to what extent, or put differently, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of hep C exposed infants. And if we start doing universal screening, we're going to realize that we've been missing a lot of these children. Um, So I think there's a real opportunity there to at the least learn the extent of the problem, but potentially have a real big impact on making sure those kids get the the services that they need as well. And so I think the first step in that has already been done, which is, you know, CDC and USPSTF, you know, making their recommendations I'm confident that ACOG will, will come around and then insurers, I'm sure, will, will follow suit. But in the meantime, I think we can educate providers, which is in part what we're doing right now, um, and hopefully they can start doing those things. One other point along those lines, too, is I should say it's cost-effective to do this. Um, there have already been a couple well-done cost-effectiveness analyses. And when you think about what it costs to treat end-stage liver disease, versus early you know, screening and, and treatment of asymptomatic um, people without cirrhosis, it's really a no-brainer. It's a lot uh, less expensive to do the latter, to screen and treat early. That makes sense. I guess there's one other thing that I would mention is expansion of Medicaid to cover 12 months um, for postpartum for moms. So I think that's another thing that we should be advocating for as physicians. If we do have a hep C um, positive mom, her coverage is potentially ending at 60 days postpartum. And so it really is important that we get out the message of how crucial it is to extend that coverage um, to provide 12 months of Medicaid coverage for moms postpartum. Yeah, um, I uh, I don't think I can say it more eloquently than that. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I, I think, the only reason we're not treating pregnant women during pregnancy for hepatitis C is simply because we haven't studied the drugs in that population. There have been some women who have received treatment during pregnancy, and I think with time, there'll be enough data that hopefully we can offer treatment during pregnancy. But before or after pregnancy, regardless of symptoms, regardless of 
you know, stage of liver disease, um, you know, women are treatment eligible. So yeah, if they have coverage for an extended period of time postpartum, then that can only help them get access to these, you know, while, while it's cheaper to, to treat early than it is to treat in stage liver disease, I don't mean to minimize the cost of these drugs. They still are quite expensive. And, you know, most people aren't going to be able to afford them out of pocket. Fortunately, there are, you know, good drug assistance programs. So even those who are um, uninsured or underinsured can still access them uh, to some extent, especially if they have the support of a clinical pharmacist, you know, through an academic medical center like Vanderbilt, for example. But, but yeah, if, if they had insurance, then it'd be simple. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.